Hello and welcome to Meet the Producer. This is the new podcast series from the Production Guild of Great Britain, in which we get a unique insight into the careers and work of some inspirational producers. I'm Jason Solomons, film critic and presenter on TV and radio and in newspapers, now embarking on a new career as a film producer. So what better way, I thought, to start out than by asking some of the best in the business for advice. How do you start? Where does the money come from? How do you make deals for stars and attached directors? And what does a producer do all day? I'll ask a diverse collection of guests to understand how some of our favourite films and TV shows have come together. And we'll all find out more as I meet the producer. My guest on this episode is a British film producing legend, a genuine movie producer who actually chomps on a cigar. He's Colin Vaines, a former film trade journalist who became a producer in various ways on such successes as Gangs of New York, Cold Mountain, The Young Victoria and My Week with Marilyn. Now, with his own independent production company and working alongside Barbara Broccoli, Colin recently had a hit with Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool, starring Annette Benning and Jamie Bell. A long-time Soho resident, Colin lives at the spiritual heart of the British independent film industry, where he's an ardent neighbourhood champion and campaigner, as well as a familiar figure in its cafes and whiskey bars. And that's where I found him to meet the producer. <laughs> the only, I'm probably the only one who admits to smoking cigars. That's the difference, isn't it? I think, I'm sure there's people having a puff or two somewhere or other, but yes. <laughs> well, I think it suits you very well. Uh, and I don't know where that cliche comes from, from old Hollywood. Um, are, are we like old Hollywood in the UK? We're not really, are we? No, not at all. And it's kind of, as you say, it's like another another universe, really. That definitely was the, the cliche of the guy with the cigar sort of yelling and shouting at everybody on the set or whatever. So there's plenty of yelling and shouting, I think, that still goes on. But yes, it's very much a cigar-free zone. Uh, Colin, you've got a fantastic list of credits from Coriolanus to Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool to the uh, recent Sandra Bullock hit on Netflix. Unforgivable. Uh, and you're still working in loads of loads of different ways as an independent producer now. But you've been through all the systems, haven't you? You've, you've, you've worked with the studios, you've worked with mini studios like Miramax, and now yep. you're independent again. Yep. Which iteration is better? Where do you feel comfortable? <laughs> oh, well, it's always fabulous to get a regular check, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> working for it with, in, in-house in a company. So, I mean, that's lovely. But then against that is the fact of being able to really run with things that you believe in passionately yourself uh, because I think I'm very good at kind of developing other people's projects, but inevitably along the way, there's things that you really want to go with yourself and really want to do 100% and, in, in that sense. I think at the moment, funnily enough, I mean, I, I'm enjoying where I am. I'm working quite a lot with um, Stuart Ford at AGC, and Stuart and I worked together originally at Miramax, and then he went off to IM Global, and he put up half the money for film stars don't die in Liverpool. But we're, we're just really close friends, but also there's a good sensibility there. So what's ha- what at the moment, I have about four or five projects with him, which are t- television and film stuff. A couple of things that he brought to me, three things that I brought to, to, to him that just seemed to work out. And so I almost feel like I'm semi within a, within a company orbit or whatever. It's not quite the same as it used to be, but it's quite nice to have that and to have the team of people who are 
fantastic that work with him. And that's yeah. in Hollywood, is it? Yeah, they're based in LA. They did have a London office, but really that everything that they were doing was in LA. So, so, I mean, I find those divisions, of course, kind of slightly meaningless in the world that we live in, because ultimately, I do think that there is a mindset which is interesting. I have to say, I was always, always drawn to the, an American mindset, if I could put it like that, rather than a, 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 a European one to some degree. I mean, I like the melding of the two, but I've always felt, you know, I felt like I worked really well in America. But the truth is now, with Zoom and with everything else and with the conversations one has, that it feels to me like I, I never, I never specifically think, oh, is this an American project or is this a European project? I just think this is the thing that I would like to do or that I've been hired to work on to, to, to move forward. How can we get the best story? How can we get the best elements out of this? And in the current marketplace, what's the best home for it? So, for example, you've got a project. Let's, uh, let, I don't know if you can name one of them that you, you, you took, you, you, it came to you and what did it, it comes to you as a script or as an idea or something you've always been working on. And then you take it to Stuart Ford and, uh, and get it financed and get it, and, you know, and, and all those uh, sort of uh, elements that you were just talking about that are coming together and you feel a right but what, how does it come to you and how do you then develop it well there are two there are two ways of it that happens one is that there are projects which is something either a book i've optioned or it's uh, or a life rights to to someone that i'm taking or whatever that then that's a slightly different thing because obviously then i'm going to think that i'm i'm in the driving seat as it were right from the start yeah and then I have to think, who, what is the best combination of elements for taking this forward? What stage do we do that? But with someone like, for, to be specific about the things with Stuart, that, for example, he brought me a, a, a project, which I can't talk about yet because we haven't announced it, but it's moving <laughs> forward quite fast, which is a music-based uh, project. And uh, that was something that he had, the, the writer was already on board, had done like an outline that was based on a, a short book. And Stuart said, would you get involved and produce and develop this and then see it through to production? You know, so really going from soup to nuts. So we've been in development on that for the last uh, two or three years. Soup and to now... nuts. That is a fantastic business expression. <laughs> I think I think it's my old Laurel and Hardy uh, uh, knowledge that kicks in. Is it, don't they have a short film? I'm going to use it. I'm going to use it. I'm going to use the cigar. I'm going to call everyone kid. I'm going to say, let's go from soup to nuts in 60 seconds on this. <laughs> yeah, so, so that in that case, we've now, now I've brought a director onto it uh, that we all, as a company and individually, that, that myself and the writer, who's also a producer, uh, wanted to, to to work on with it. So in that case, that that's something where I was brought in, but I'm shaping the whole thing as it moves along. There's another project of Stuart's that that's similarly I can't talk about. <laughs> Not been announced. Very frustrating this, but it's a it's quite it's a I would say it's a kind of quite a big romantic uh, noir actually set in uh, Italy in in around the end of the Second World War. And that's something which, again, was came in as a script with the director and writer already attached to it. Uh, and Stuart was really keen to do it. And he again came to me and said, could I develop the script further? So th so when does that involve? So it's, it's, it's fairly formed and it comes to you. You can then put your own little, you work with the, the writer to, to change the script, to just hone it, to just get it yeah. to, to the bits where you can then say, right, we're going to take this forward. We're going to book the production slots. We're going to, what do you yeah, do? Yeah, it's just to backtrack on yeah. where I came from and why that is my particular thing that I, I started as a journalist at Screen International 
um, which was with very much in mind that I would love to do something more involved in films. I didn't quite know what it was, but there was a kind of a, that if you worked for the, the trade papers of the day, often as not, you would end up working in the business that was your, that your, the trade paper was on. So if you worked for Enemy or Melody Maker, you'd probably go off and become a producer or an A&R person or something like that. There was always a transition and for film, there was a fair degree of people working through the system, you know, so, so that the people that could be journalists that could then go off and be producers or whatever, or develop people. And one day I was asked by uh, Mahmoud Hassan, who was then running what was called the National Film Finance Corporation. It's basically all been absorbed in all its variations into the BFI. But he asked me to put my hat in the ring to run the development uh, side of that called the NFDF, and uh, which was very nice. So this is I, in the 80s, yeah? This is in the 80s, yeah. So I, I, I transitioned across and was incredibly lucky that I was able to choose the consultants I worked with, that basically people, it was the government agency for film and this bit was the government agency for film development. And I was able to choose people to work with who I really liked, respected, admired or whatever. So I had an incredible group of consultants, Alan Parker and, and Sandy Lieberson and uh, Michael Palin at one time, Stephen Freer. There were you know, a whole group of people that were incredible. Richard Lester, who was fantastic, real old school. And then at the time, the cutting edge people or whatever. And we looked at a group of projects that had been submitted every month and made decisions about what we funded. But in addition to that, it was expected that whoever ran the fund would then get involved in helping to develop that project further. Yeah. So you would bring to bear your story skills or whatever. Now, I never was formally trained in screenwriting. I yes. never went, it was the day, it really is the days before the McKee courses and things like that yeah. took off things around, but nobody was selling things in quite that sort of way. So a lot of it was, I discovered very early on, a lot of my journalistic skills were very applicable to this i.e. how do you tell a story, grab someone's interest at the beginning of it, and then develop oh, that. Oh, good. This is very of... encouraging. Yeah, yeah. Because, <laughs> no, because you, were, you were, you know, Screen International recently have started doing some archive stuff at the back of the... The back yes. of the thing, and quite often you're, you know, you come up as a sort of intrepid reporter going to talk to, you know, Liz Taylor or someone, uh, you know, <laughs> as you get a can, that sort of thing. And I was like, oh, that's so. I, I, I think having known you for a while, I don't think I knew that you were, you know, quite the reporter that you know, the same way as oh, I was. Yeah, I was, but I did screen for like nearly I think seven to eight years, and I ended up co-editing with Adrian Hodges, who went on to become a really great uh, writer, screenwriter, TV writer, and film writer. But we met everyone, it was anyone. Yeah. I mean, I, and it was like heaven. I remember I've got pictures sort of tucked away in sort of boxes around the world, but I've got things like, you know, great things. Like I met Billy Wilder when he was promoting Fedora in Cannes. And, actually, and this was like, so this was 78. And I was obsessed with the private life of Sherlock Holmes, which everyone hated. Everyone around me thought I was a lunatic. Now it's become quite cool to like it yes. at the time. It, and for him, it was only seven, eight years earlier and very painful because it had been a really horrible process. So really, rather than Fedora, which I hadn't seen, so we could only talk about, it was screening at the festival, but it hadn't screened yet. Could only talk about that generally, but of course what he got from me was this onslaught about the private life of Sherlock Holmes. But to be able to talk to the guy that made these things that meant so much to me and ask these kind of questions, 
that was fundamental in terms of shaping well, you know, the, the people I speak to Colin so often they're screenwriters or they're directors and they always think well what would Billy Wilder do you know their favourite yeah. he happens to be The Apartment or something like it hot or or, yeah. or Sunset yeah. Boulevard or Private Life of Sherlock Holmes which was Jonathan Coe's favourite and he then wrote the book uh, Wilder, Mr Wilder and Me which is about, about the, the making fedora. of Fedora yeah. Yeah. and she's now yeah. going to become a film uh, which Jeremy Thomas is producing, Stephen Frears is, is directing. Oh, I'm very jealous of all of that. I was very keen on that, but uh, but that, that some slightly more uh, potent people got involved. So you, did, you, did you try and get involved? I talked to Jonathan about doing it, but uh, but it was already at that point. It right. was headed. Christopher Hampton had, yes. had read it and was in touch, and it was beginning to. And it, Frears had already seen it, so it was already beginning to move in wonderful direction because that that's a fantastic i couldn't be happier for jonathan that's the greatest group of people to work with so you it. couldn't option that just as a producer you were like i want to get involved but i can't too late, too late. Too it late. was already it was already moving down the line in terms of in, in terms of, of where it was going but I, i'm thrilled for jonathan the book's fabulous i've really read it but yeah, well, I loved it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Made me watch Fedora again. Made me talk to Jonathan Coe. Yeah, made me watch Fedora for only the second time in my life and still thought that it's like a really weird film. Isn't and, it? <laughs> like, the stuff that works, there's stuff in it that was much better than I, than I remembered it being. But there was other stuff that I just thought, oh, no, this is like, you can see all the problems. But I think his book is genius, the way it captures that. And the device that he uses of the young girl kind of like being, you know, go, taking you on this journey, that's a fantastic So is that one. what interests you, Colin, now? I mean, the that you were taking us through that, that production story and we can go all the way through that and how you joined up with Miramax and became European production and head and worked for Columbia and all of these things. Uh, but we have a limited time. Um, yes. So... Is that what you look for as a producer now, this independent producer? You, you see a book that you really like, you see a play that you really like, you're still really involved with going out and looking at stuff uh, and, and thinking, how do I get on this? Yes, yes. I, I, the, 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 for me, it's like, if someone, I mean, I, I get sent a lot of material. Yeah. If I don't engage with it or connect with it, then that's obviously problematic. So the stuff that I that when when it come and and the stuff that I've come on board have been stories that I thought this is something fantastic in this material it needs work and that so I would kind of then proffer up and that's what for better or for worse people think I that I'm good at doing that side of it so because I ran development for so many companies and did did it so often that that I always come to any project from the script and and like is this fundamentally like a really great story that's going to sustain and hold up and be something i mean i look for emotion i mean that's the, that's the biggest thing conceptually you're always thinking is this going to get made today so there are certain stories i i i will say that with mr wilder and me there was a you know that one of the things that was perhaps if you'd say a strike against it was it's even though it's told from the perspective of this young woman who goes to work for billy wilder it's a very male story yeah. in a lot of ways uh, and I think that, that that, of course, always gives you slight pause. However, it also has this, as you would say, grey dollar element to it, which I happen to know is something that's really, really potentially huge. Then I've got a project that I'm, I'm doing, which again has not been officially announced, but so, but it's been around for like, I've been working on it for 15 years or something like that but it's basically a grey dot it's a classic grey dollar movie it's the grey like dollar that. and the silver pound don't they what these are these are sort of mature audiences mature audiences and i know i can bring something to that because i'm a mature person so i can bring that element to it but the biggest thing i'm looking for is just is the story 
emotionally engaging? Is there something in it that I feel touched, moved, or thrilled, or you know, excited yeah. by? And moment? these are basic things, aren't they, Colin? I mean, I know that the market changes, and people look for female skewed stories, or diverse skewed stories, or intersectionality, and all of these things in terms of the funding. But ultimately, even with those stories, there's still got to be a base rock of emotional engagement. But for me, there has, where, where I'm not engaged either when I read a script or by a finished film, is if I feel that it's somehow following an agenda, but without the other bits kind of added to it. And I think it's such a necessary corrective, the way that we've gone in the last few years. It's fantastic to have other voices and other thoughts and other ideas and other people represented properly. But I think that it's still the bottom line is exactly that is, is this a story that you're going to want to sit down and watch for either an hour and a half or 10 hours or whatever it is? Yeah. Let's get down into one of those uh, films that recently that I really uh, enjoyed of yours, which is Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool, which has that classic mythical story about cinema. I mean, that it's about Gloria Graham and her time here in, in, in the UK, a story I didn't know. Uh, based on a book by a book that I didn't know, but a beautiful story that came together with you co-producing with Barbara Broccoli with some great elements in there. How, how involved were you with shepherding that one uh, to the screen with Annette Benning starring and getting a BAFTA nominations for that? It was it was a fantastic collaboration between myself and Barbara. That essentially I'd read the book when I was at Columbia Pictures working with David Putnam briefly at Columbia. Wow, a long time ago. Yeah, that was like eighty-five or something. And uh, we looked at it and it was, uh, there was actually a script developed at Columbia, which I was not involved in, but which kind of like, there was a screenplay done, but it, it didn't work out for whatever reasons. And the rights bounced around for a while. Columbia had them, then they let them go working title, I think had it for a little while. Norma Heyman and Barbara were tussling over the rights to it at some point. But Barbara had skin in the game because she'd lived through it. She knew the writer, Peter Turner, and that he turned up at her door one day with, hello, this is Gloria Graham. So she'd lived through it. So she felt very, very invested. And over the years, she sort of wanted to make a film of it, but it had never quite come together. You know, the, the, the director couldn't get quite the right director or the right writer or whatever. And I was coming back from working for Graham King in LA. I was coming back to work in London again. And I drew up a list of projects that I loved that had never been made. And that was top of my list. Really? You remembered it all this time? Oh yeah, it always stayed with me because it was such a haunting story. There was something, for all the reasons you so eloquently <laughs> described, it has a lot of elements that I thought great. First, it was just a fantastic love story. And secondly, it was an, it was that collision of the unusual, the, the, the big Hollywood star in this little house in Liverpool, which I thought was fabulous. Anyway, I've cut to the chase. I discovered that Barbara still was involved and still had held on to write. So I called her up and I just said, look, you know, kind of, would you be interested? I've got an idea for how to move ahead with this. And I had in my head uh, Matt Greenhalge because what, one of the things- As a writer, did, yeah. Yeah, one of the things that, that I'd done in the last, in the, in the, in the just before that, was that uh, Harvey was making um, uh, My Week with Marilyn and, uh, and that we had a, I thought, fantastic script that, that by Adrian Hodges, but uh, they wanted to do some additional writing on it or whatever. So Adrian was doing some additional writing and I was brought in to kind of say, can I, you know, can I help out with this and do something else? And I worked with Matt Greenhalgh, who had written Control, which, mm. which uh, had been a Miramax release or whatever. And Matt and I just got like a house on fire. So essentially, 
I, came, I, I thought when we finished that, I thought, Stones don't die in Liverpool would be that. That's a great sort of thing. He understands old Hollywood in a way. He kind of because he only wrote a few scenes in that in that film, by the way, and he was uncredited for it. But they were nice moments along the way. But it was really more about getting to know him as a person. So I caught. So I said to Barbara, I've got you know, kind of, do you want to have another go at this? I've got someone in mind to 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 work on. So Matt got got involved. We found Paul McGuigan, who was a sort of an unusual choice. Yeah, very odd. Um, but we both knew him. I knew him well because I developed a couple of things with him which had never got made when I was working at Miramax. And Barbara knew him from just knowing him. She he was always around the edges of the Bond kind of possibilities, as it were. <laughs> it was just one of those things. I met Paul at a screening and, and rang Barbara and said, "Am I completely mad about this?" And he said, "Oh my God, no. Let's. I wouldn't. You know, I wouldn't have thought of it." But let's because he'd normally know. done darker and more experimental yeah. things. Yeah, but yeah, yes, but he was a great storyteller. Yeah. That's the number one. Is his uh, yeah, key, key and a great key. visual stylist. Anyway, he came in and he described what you saw on screen. He said, "I want to make a film about memory, and I want to shoot it so that characters can walk in and out of their past and future, as it were." Uh, and and he, he, Eve Stewart had worked with him several times. Brilliant production designer. He said, I want to work with Eve and, Eve, and I've already got some ideas about that. So it was a really, that part of it was all effortless, the creator. And the other part of it was that when I called Barbara up and said, do you want to have another go at this? She said, this is so strange. And I don't think it's strange. My company's called Synchronistic Pictures. I really believe in this idea of synchronicity. She said, that's so odd. I took film stars to Annette Benning 10 years before that. And she turned it down because she felt she wasn't old enough to play the part. And she said, two weeks ago, I bumped into her in the ladies' loo at the BAFTAs. And she said, whatever happened to film stars? I mean, how extraordinary is that in terms of saying this is meant to happen? So that was all fabulous. That that scene should have been in the movie. Annette Benning in the mirror, Barbara (laughs) Broccoli, and her saying, what about this movie? And then it gets made. It's on the DVD extras (laughs) now. That's my new tenant. It's like my fair bleeding lady. Who is she? She's an actress. Famous one too. Or was. What's her name? Gloria Graham. Always played the tart. Never heard of her. Big name in black and white films. Not doing so well in colour though, obviously. What makes you say that? Well, she ain't swanning about Sunset Boulevard now, is she, Peter Love? No. She's renting a room in my house and talking a load of bollocks. <laughs> so so that was that was that. Then of course you get into the real world, which is how do you get the film financed? Yes. And uh, and and it was quite clear that even though it would have helped us enormously to have uh, some some of the sort of the, the British companies involved, what are the chances that they're going to say to Barbara Broccoli and Colin Baines, here's some money to help make your film? I mean, I don't know whether that's true or not, but I... Do you mean because they think you've got pots of money coming out of you, you know, as I can see you in the background there? I think to be... Yes, exactly. I think to be be blunt, I think that that was probably an element of it. Or maybe people just didn't like the project or whatever. I don't know. It was a strange project because it had been around for a long time, although it had never got made. So it had that slight feeling for some people of like, oh, hasn't that happened already? So it was kind of weird. But the the the, the absolute uh, person who stuck with it through thick and thin was Stuart Ford, 
who was I, I'm Global, because I'd forgotten. I actually did a classic sort of pitch pitching session to him about all my other projects in Cannes one year, not thinking about film styles at all. He said, oh, what else are you working on? And I kind of tell him that because he's a proud Liverpool lad. And he read it overnight at the festival and rang the next day. And initially, he was trying to fully fund it. In fact, the way things worked out, couldn't do that. But he put up half the money and for, you know, for, and that was fundamental in moving the thing forward. And then the other people who were fantastic in all of this were Lionsgate. It was when uh, Ziggy Kamasa was there. And, right. and, and, so you, uh, need, you need a distributor who's kind of on board with this. Uh, you need uh, some finance that's on board with this. And how, how do you bring them all together? Because this bit, when you say you go out to finance and you, you, you would say, well, you'd ask BBC or BFI or Film 4 yeah. or whatever for and they sort of say, look, no, we're, that's not where we're at. We're, we're doing different things. And you say, fine. No, and also they were doing, you know, that for, in fairness to those organisations as well, that, that they've certainly, like, that the feeling was that they want to be cultivating newer talent and supporting yeah. people. And I completely get that. We did go and we did talk to people, but we, but it was, uh, but, but it was quite clear that it wasn't going to fit into that kind of remit. Lionsgate had a, had a very clear remit that they wanted to make at least one British film a year and uh, and they liked the idea of this and they, they just the, the way that it, that it fitted together seemed to make sense for them and then from, from the American side it was Sony Classics who took it and of course Barbara had the Sony relationship very different with the other, with big Sony, as it were. Yes. When you start attaching, so you've got Matt Greenhold as the writer, and you you, you, yeah. know, you have to pay certain people beforehand. How do you, do, you, do you, can you say people are attached before you've started paying them? How much finance yeah. do you need before you get more finance? Every project is different. This was, of course, fortunate that it had uh, Eon attached to it. So that, that Barbara was prepared to put up some money to get Matt right to get Matt to do a script to mm. get that moving, we were able with a kind of development pot out of. So you need a little pot. Yes, you need that, and it depends what you. I mean, I, every project I've done has been utterly different. That that sometimes I've had money from existing development funds or whatever government development funds or whatever. Often it's out of it's working with a production company, another production company that has maybe a pot of money available for development. Sometimes you're going straight into a company, a bigger company, and they want it. They recognise that they want to do this film and they want to get involved and they want to be involved in development from right from the beginning. Randomly, another uh, AGC project I've got is a remake of a, a um, Korean film from some years ago. And that was something that, that um, a colleague of mine, Gary Sanger, brought to me and uh, that we negotiated in principle a option fee for this for this project. And because it was just two independent producers, that was a very modest amount of money. But rather than exercising that at that moment, we wanted to see, I wanted to see, I knew that this might fall into an area of films that AGC were making. So I went to them and said, look, we've done, we've done the heavy lifting, we're ready to go, but you know, kind of, do you want to come on board and fund the rest of the development process? And they did. So they took it over immediately, which meant that one didn't have, because of course, as an independent producer, one of the areas of, of this whole thing of development is risk. That there's yeah. only so many times you can risk putting up money to do it and you do need a you do need separate funding to do that i tend to work the way that i work is that i'm supporting myself and i'm supporting myself out of the, the projects that i make and that's a pot of money which i generally live on rather and i might and i might take small amounts of that money to pay for small things here and there cigars but, <laughs> cigars but uh, but beyond that 
I would be, I would either need to go out and have a pot of money, which I did have at one time. I had a television company for a few years with a with a colleague, and we had uh, a, a, a television sales company behind us for that. And so there was enough money there to be able to, when we wanted to option something, to pay for the option and to develop it further. I mean, that's really it. Depends what you want to do. I've never been really turned on by the idea of having a big company around me it's like it's i've, I've worked for big companies yes. I like when I, the way i work at the moment is i prefer to work under my own steam and do my own things and not feel too 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 overloaded with but you said you say overloaded but you said you've got like four or five projects on the go at various stages of development all, all the time colin I, I i would say more than that I mean, right I think any one time i've probably got a dozen things that i'm working on which are either being brought to me or they're things that i've generated and have taken out to how do you keep people. tabs on where they're all at i mean because some of them will 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 kind of ramp up very quickly into being made or being produced or being out there being released how do you how do you sort of dedicate yeah. time to which one i think you just kind of i mean remember when i was back in my miramax days not only was i i was full time as an exec producer on gangs in new york which they, the company had just bought just as I joined the company. But I was running the development slate, which was about 110 projects. And what the, you kind of and had an incredible team of development people that just like phenomenal people. There may be half, maybe a dozen people that were, that you could, that were working with me or whatever. And then I would report to the head of production. You just got used to it. And I think that in a way that I think because I came up doing it that way, that I think I don't find it difficult to kind of to move from one project yeah. to another. I find it quite easy to keep those going. And you just have to kind of keep, you know, you just keep, you, have a, you look at everything every day and you look at a chart of where you are and where your projects are and what needs attention that day. And just I suppose it can't be that far from getting, when you were editing Screen International, getting that edition out, you know, have we done the reviews? Have we done this? Are the features done? Is the front of the house, is my column done? So, you know, all of that gets, and suddenly it all comes together. And there's a little bit of a, bit of um you know flying by the seat of one's pants at some point i assume that's the excitement isn't it there is and what what happens is that something will take off and then you just have to make sure that you put the time and attention properly into that and that make sure that the other stuff doesn't fall away so not normally i i nearly always work with with colleagues i nearly always have like some partners on projects I'm each doing... one needs needs some not help but the sharing of the burden or different skills yeah, that you, know, yeah, you haven't got yeah. that they, they can bring yeah so obviously something like you know the whole setup on film shows don't die in liverpool was fantastic because obviously barbara is absolutely brilliant and she brings an incredible infrastructure within eon who could we could tap into for certain things and then we would just kind of fit you know together we, we were both very creatively involved we were both on set every day with paul and we were both very much involved in post on the on the film so so that was the case but something else i'm doing like i've got a project at the moment with the director peter chelsom and i'm doing that with a co-producer called lee brazier who's brilliant who i've known since he was paul webster's assistant at film four and uh, and and that works really well that we this is an italian 1950s uh, murder mystery is that, is that right? yes it's the kind of twisty turny con game thriller that's set in, 19, in the 1950s on the amalfi coast well i love um, all of that Oh yeah, I think I think it could be I think it could be absolutely fantastic. Peter's What's this one called? 
It's called The Beauty of Sharks. The Beauty of Sharks. But Peter Chelson, who did Hear My Song, um, and The Mighty, which was no, no one ever saw, but I thought was a tremendous Shall We song. Dance was, was fabulous. Shall the We re- Dance, of course, the, yeah, a Japanese remake, remake of the Japanese Serendipity, which kind of keeps turning up on lists. No, I think Peter's absolutely fantastic. So that's something where uh, that was a script that had been around for a long time by Rob Green, a brilliant script. And we were just, that Lee brought it to me some years ago. And I just had one of those revelatory moments of thinking, oh, Peter would be perfect for this. And he spends quite a lot of time working in Italy. And in fact, the script was originally set on the south, in the south of France. But Peter was working in Italy. He made a film there called uh, Security with Marco De More, which was very successful on Netflix. And what, I knew that was all moved, going on and happening. So I went to Peter and said, have a look at the script. What do you think about this? And he loved it. And he said, let's reset it in Italy rather than, than France. Where I've got a house. Ah! <laughs> no, him, him, not me. Oh, I, oh, I wish shit. I had a house. I thought, I thought Jason's doing really well. <laughs> I wouldn't be going into production if I had my house in the in Amalfi Coast. I did get married there. So there you go, it was a start. <laughs> but no, I'm really looking forward to, to, to that. That sounds, you know, terrific. You know, project. So, is that about to start shooting? And then you, there you get, you used to get yourself a few weeks in the Amalfi Coast. There, Colin, smart it producing. Be, it, it would be lovely. No, we're we're sort of slightly in casting hell. That we have a really great draft of the script. That we uh, have been working with an Italian co-production company, and we have a sales agent. So, obviously, when you go, but when to go back to the very basic yes. essence of starting out on a project, clearly. If you could, if you if you've developed your script, either you've done raised the money privately or you've done it through. So I mean, the best way of always, I think, if you can find a way to develop without giving everything away to begin with, then you're in a much more powerful situation. But once you have your script and you have a, maybe a director or whatever, getting a sales company involved, like we did on Film Stars, where we had I Am Global were involved in selling, that getting it getting in the case of Beauty of Sharks, I'm working with the solution which is Lisa Wilson, who I worked with when I worked with Graham King and her partner. And uh, and they have done their projections, their figures for territories, what they want, but they need cast. So what we're having to do is, and of course it, it needs, it, it's, it need, yeah, it needs three really significant pieces of casting. Mm. And that is about whether someone responds to the script, whether they're available, whether if they're not available now, whether they can, be, whether you can make it work further down the line, will that then work with the other people that you want involved? And as you well? do all those deals, do you, do you, Colin? I mean, you know, so you'll need a big star, not Annette Benning, let's say, maybe, maybe again because you, you know you, you you got on well or whatever from from the last time. But to secure one of those, you you go out to their agents, you go to their. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and you, you might know them yourself, but you go through their agent, you sort of say, right, well, and they say, well, they need millions to do this, two million pounds, and you say, well, yeah. we haven't got that, I'm afraid. Well, exactly. You kind of know, you've got to know within within the term. I mean, obviously, one of the things you do with your script is get something, get a budget done as soon as you can. Work with the line producer and really get something done. And that can work. That can be at different levels as well. There can be. I mean, you once you know what the below the line basic costs of the film are. That's the most important thing to know because then after that, it's like, well, of course, it could be. 20 million more if a cut if a, if someone if you've got an actor that demands yeah. if, million. if George Clooney is doing coming down from his summer house to do this in the Amalfi Coast <laughs> then it's a very different thing mm. but uh, but but for yeah you need to kind of know what you're going to be looking at budget wise and then in the case of like working 
actually working with with every sales company I've worked with, they've been very involved in uh, certainly the American ones have been very involved in the process that they the best of having a sale a, a sales company like the solution involved is they will back offers that you can go out to agents and you can say rather than because what agents don't want is is basically you fishing to attach their client and then you're fishing to attach other money so they want to know that there's something more serious that the project is further down the line and so therefore a sales agency that can come in and can back up an offer if you're offering five hundred thousand dollars to a start and they are kind of backing that up because they could do that if we move ahead they know they have the money available to do that that obviously puts you in a totally different situation so what are your your basic tenets you said that so you get the idea or the book or the option get the script then get the director. Is that your order? Then get a sales agent. Yeah, uh, probably. I mean, again, everything things tend to to shift around. It's interesting that that like uh, when I've been hired to do things recently, I've been hired to really work on the scripts. One of them, one, one project I'm working on has got. They, they vary. They really vary. But in terms of my own process, then yes, I would generally want to develop the script first and then look for a director afterwards. But it can be a simultaneous thing. I mean, it can be that if you've got, and sometimes the director will bring you an idea and then say, let's work together. Obviously that's a great position to be in, to kind of, to have that 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 happening. But in general, I, I through most of my career, I've tended to work on things which have been developed as, for myself, have been developed independently and then the director gets involved with it. How different has it been now? As you had this big hit with the, I, I, we assume it's a big hit. I don't know if they tell you, uh, <laughs> with Sandra Bullock on Netflix for The Unforgivable. How is working with the with the, with the streamers? That was that was a, you know that was a great. I think it was a, must have been your first time with such a, an experience. Is it different? Has has the landscape changed now that they've come in? It's massively changed. I mean, it's really it's 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 you know completely different. I mean, obviously, the one thing is that the people in charge. You know, there's a lot of movement and change in the people that are running the shows. So it tends to be, you, it becomes a little more tricky in terms of, you know, that the, there was a kind of consistent, let's see, with some of the old school companies where there would be one quite powerful personality involved for a long time that would at least give you some sort of sense of where you're moving forward. And I think that, that for many producers, today that the issue is like are we going to be talking to the same person in you know a yeah. month's time or six months time or whatever i mean you know candidly on unforgivable it was something that i had seen the unforgiven on or not yes yeah the unforgiven i think it was the tv show yes, yeah, it was British the tv, TV show. one sally wainwright's show which we obviously couldn't call it that uh i'd seen that an option that and then gone to graham king and then we'd worked together to come up with write, a writer and director list and blah 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 Got, got it into development for for, uh, for writing and it took a long time it was there for years and years and years it just one of those things even when we had different we had for different combinations of writers directors and actors but it never quite gelled into one thing and then graham got sandra bullock interested and that immediately meant that netflix wanted to do it because i wanted another thing with her so it happened very fast and in that case graham was talking directly to scott stuber you know he's kind of the head of the, the, the head honcho yes so that was a lot a lot more straightforward to do i've got a second one that i'm doing for netflix which is with agc but that has been walked into agc through the piece of talent that's attached to this project that they have an ongoing deal with netflix you're not so, doing an adam sandler movie are you colin <laughs> i'd love to do one you know what <laughs> i love him i absolutely love him but no we're not um so so it, 
you know, sometimes you just get lucky. Sometimes you just get, if you've got a great piece of material and it, and you and you then attract great talent to it, that great talent will often be the people that kind of actually trigger the thing and push it through the door. But I think in, in terms of the, 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 you know, you've got to take all the streamers seriously. You've got to look at them all seriously. And they have changed the fabric of how things are done. I think it's kind of, strange for old school producers like myself because we're so used to setting up a you know really being very hands-on and kind of like working with sales agents or whatever work going to distributors around the world really being involved in selling the thing figuring out a deal where you see something at the back end if it's a big success which of course with the streamers is not the case the way things work now here's the great news is they pay you quickly and they kind of like I remember Netflix were pursuing me to pay me on on, on uh, the unforgivable and that, that's never happened in my life <laughs> I felt that that was going on so and they paid really well they paid full freight yada 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 but well, and then that, so that with that money that you've got then you they say right now go and make it and deliver it to me I want it on my desk and you know nine o'clock Monday it morning it was kind of like but it was pretty much that once they'd signed off on on the budget and so on and what they were doing that they just let you know Graham in particular as the guy he's the he's the, the main guy that just got the thing up and running and, and and moving and and again when we wanted to change something right at the end of it we were looking to um uh, there was a there was a change in one of the elements in it that had to be redone very fast and they were fine with that they they moved fast. so all of that is absolutely fantastic it didn't feel like there was a lot of editorial interference mm. or whatever but it is a different like like you could argue that had that film been an independent film then and if it had done fantastic business then you would see more at the back end of it you'd always be a participant in those things whereas now they the fee that you get is the fee is the end of it this is why you've seen all this stuff unfolding with hbo and disney and all these other things where they sold on a film like wonder woman or whatever and then they kind of in order to put it onto hbo max they had to pay the box office bonuses and so on that they would have paid had it gone out in a theatrical way now there's not in, in fairness there's not a huge number of films where people see a huge amount of back end isn't but, there even in your you know you've had hits and not so big hits no it's very very difficult to to, to see it there's certainly if you're working with the major studios it's always going to be a challenge to kind of to find money coming out of that to, to find the additional money there's always costs that are being written off against it all those things however if you are doing a, the ones where you really know it and i I haven't had one of those, but are the really small films, the really tiny things that like the Blair Witches or like Paranormal Activity, where suddenly something takes off and it's impossible to hide away the fact that it's made a lot of money <laughs> and that people will benefit. You haven't had one of those, would you I say? Haven't had one of those. No, sadly not. Not little surprise gems that what they just that just went you know just went mad. No, not yet. Not yet. I'm still looking for one of those. <laughs> After all this time, it's just extraordinary. <laughs> What's the one that got you? What's you know you you said at the beginning how you know it was a slow sort of creep yeah. in, into production and suddenly yeah. you were in charge of this film. But was there a, a film that you saw maybe as as a as a reporter back in the seventies and eighties that made you think, yeah, this is that's what I I, I want to be oh, in this oh, business because of oh, it. My, my, no, my my story is I've told it many many times. No, it was when I was ten that our teacher at school. I loved movies when I was a kid. My parents had no interest at all. I have no idea why. But when I was like from the time of about five, I would want, I would ask to go and see films. So I remember that at five, I saw a poster for Jason and the Argonauts and said, I want to see that. Yes. And I, I still love that film. Um, Where was but, this? We're uh, growing up in? 
Uh, oh, Croydon. Croydon. Just Glamorous Croydon. Croydon, yeah. Glamorous Croydon, exactly. Um, so I know the when I was 10 years old, our English teacher read us this fantastic story um, about a pilot who bails out of a plane and kind of survives and falls in love with the radio operator and then put on trial for his life. We just thought this was, just read it as a story, fantastic. Then he showed us, without us knowing it, it was A Matter of Life and Death, the Powell and Pressburger film, which was one of the first films apparently to be novelised. It was the Royal Film performance. I've got a copy of the book. Uh, so that was like mind blowing. That was like, for me, was like, I remember watching this 16 mil print and thinking, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. I, 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 but I didn't know what. I want to get involved. I want to get involved. And I thought initially, actually, maybe I could become a film critic because then I, somebody would pay me to go and see a lot of films. Yeah, they do. What that's like. <laughs> well, they used to. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So, um, so that was really it. And then I, then I, so then I, studied journalism with that view that I'd write about films with a view that I could cross over into actually being more involved and so that happened in this this process of Mamoon asking me to go and run the development fund and then from there I was just very lucky that I knew a lot of great people and I seemed to sort of know what I was doing and went to work for people like David Putnam and so on and it was David who gave me the chance to produce for the first time properly in that I developed when I was working for Enigma in London that um, uh, I d we were doing films like Memphis Bell and so on at the time, and I was involved on the script development of things like that. But there was a project David had always wanted to make, which was, and now you could do it pretty straightforwardly at the time, it was seen as challenging. He wanted to do uh, T. Lawrence's life from cradle to grave. And so, and at the time everyone was going, oh my God, it's so expensive, how do you compete with Lena or whatever? And it was a friend of his, Clive Irving, a brilliant journalist, who said, you know, you get, you've got to do the microcosm. You've just got to do one small incident that will be emblematic of the rest of this person's life. And the bit of T. Lawrence's life that wasn't covered in any of the biographies or whatever at the time was when he went to the Paris Peace Conference in 1919 and tried to put Faisal on the throne of Syria. And uh, so Clive and his wife did incredible research on it. And I brought in a, a brilliant writer who just died recently tim rose price oh. to do a screenplay and originally it was written as a three-part of a tv then it was turned into a one-off film mike newell was going to do it and then uh, the money all fell apart it was going to be an anglo-french co-production money fell apart disappeared and then suddenly one day and this is when you ask about you know films and film production and like how do you work for it this is what happens sometimes David came running in the office and said, Cole, that, that T. Lawrence film, can we make it for a million quid? And I said, I'm sure we can. You know, guessing that we could. He says, great, because Anglia TV have a million pounds to spend before the end of the tax year, and the project they were going to do was falling through. Let's do this instead. So suddenly, the film's fully financed, and I'm producing it with my colleague, Uberto Pasolini, you know, went on to do things like Full Monty. Full Monty is yeah. still working yeah. today, so I'm in Cannes, yeah. Yeah, um, and I get, you know, and so this thing has this tremendous momentum going to it. And the person that I wanted for it that had been recommended to me by Patsy uh, Pollock, the great casting director, she said, you've got to go to the RSC to see this boy that's there. He's fantastic. He's called Ray Fiennes. So, and I couldn't get him when we were going to shoot the film in France. Suddenly we were shooting it in England, like in, we shot, shot it in a tin shed on the on the banks of the Thames so that we could get him to the uh, Barbican every night. 
And, uh, and so all these things came together amazingly quickly. The film got made, Chris Manall, who'd just done Prime Suspect, I hired to direct it or whatever. I didn't know my, excuse my French, ask from my elbow, but you know, you learn, because that's the best way to do any of these yeah. things, learn on the job, just do it. You know, people can try and teach you this, that and the other, but the best thing you can do is just be thrown into the whole thing. Well, given a million quid by David Putnam and uh, the, you know, Britain's hottest acting star, there's a start. Yeah, because he, he, he was completely unknown. I mean, we got him out of the RSC. He'd done nothing at that time. But you just knew as soon as you met him that this guy, this kid was going to be a superstar and that we got, I mean, he got paid peanuts for doing it but it was a, he was passionate to do it and it was a great opportunity and we all sort of felt like we I mean, what was he, he was 27 at the time we all sort of felt like we were learning on the job as it were which was part of the fun of the thing and i guess what 25 years later you ended up making his feature debut coriolanus for him that's right because he, he was working on that and he'd hit a bit of a speed bump for various reasons and two of my friends were involved on it already julia taylor stanley and gabby tanner um, but I think it just needed something to unstick it a bit. So he called me up and said, would, you, would I get more involved in it? And that was really satisfying to go from, you know, to, to do exactly that thing of like that having started out together on that for the first thing I produced, that then now this was what produced the first thing he directed. And I thought he did a brilliant job. I have to yeah, say. I love that film. And I, I was in Coriolanus at school when I was 14. I was a spear oh. carrier. So I always had a little, little skin in that game. But that was a tricky one to do because people did, you know, it was a very risky, it was seen as a very risky project. And my, I would say my biggest contribution on that was was getting the budget cut almost in half. That I said, we've got to think about this a completely different way because you're not going to make it for the level of budget that, that had been planned at the time. And, uh, and we all worked really hard together and ended up going to Serbia, which actually didn't have a tax break but it had all sorts of advantages because Gabby Tanner's dad, Dan Tanner, uh, the famous restaurateur, was almost like royalty in Serbia. So they gave us all sorts of things. They gave us tanks and military vehicles. They gave us the Senate to film in or whatever. It was quite an incredible thing. So there were reasons for doing that. And it was still a lot cheaper, of course, than shooting anywhere else. But it was always a modern day military sort of Always a modern day version. But But the things you weigh up as a producer is where can you get the best bang for your buck? I and mean, we could have probably done that as an Anglo-Hungarian co-production and there were real advantages with the way the tax situation worked and so on to do that. But it happened that because of Gabby's relationships and the Serbian things, and then we got a private equity company in Serbia to get involved and invest in it. Wow, there's a lot to get, there's a lot to do as a producer, Colin. I mean, there's the creative <laughs> side that you're talking about, then there's all this tax break in Serbia and can we get a tank stuff. What, what does a producer do all day? What are you doing? Apart from you speak to me, what are you up to? <laughs> Remain anxious. <laughs> <laughs> so low level of stress, hence the cigars, that probably is yes, your exactly. moment. To... Low, well, it's a, a bit like, you know, the, what's the classic description of war? It's kind of long periods of boredom punctuated by brief bursts of high anxiety. It's kind of like, the, the thing is, you, you've got so much on at any one time. I candidly, and I always say, can of these people my strength is creativity my strength is recognizing the material developing the material putting together people in front of the camera cast and so on but also very very much casting behind the scenes with who are the creative people that can work to make the film uh, and i'm I, I know that i really deliver in 
that prep period for that for, for that stuff i know that i really deliver in post in terms of cuts of films and knowing having worked on so many films and having worked with my particularly unique uh background of having worked at Miramax where we were constantly in the cutting room on films kind of <laughs> moving and changing things oh, you were one uh, of the scissor hands were you I was I, I had a minor a minor scissor <laughs> scissor involved in the thing but uh, again I I learned a lot and also the best of those processes people you know felt like the films were better I think from that but anyway whatever it is it's a creative shaping but you have to know the other stuff as well. You have to be able to look at a budget and understand a budget. You have to be able to kind of to think about how am I going to sell this film? What's it? Where's it going to sit? Who are the people I can go to? How can I do that? Put those things together. And yes, you do have to kind of like, you know, make the deals with the agents and so on and know what's, what's possible. And have you got better at those? Are there still or would you rather not rather? But did you leave that up to some producing partners? Sometimes you say you take care of that while I'm developing it, this. Yeah, it varies. It's normally when you've got like a group of people involved on something that then inevitably there are some people that have relationships that, but which are different to the ones mm. that you have. Mm. And you're you're just kind of like, you know, that you, you find a way of divide, dividing those things and making that work. But I, I like to have certainly it's uh, I enjoy having colleagues around that can really do that. Also, you enjoy different sensibilities. You know, I've, I've never been a pure line producer, but that physical production element is fascinating to me because obviously you are going to have a say. I mean, one of the things you've got to keep an eye on is like you need to know what the price of doing certain things is, what are the consequences of shooting a certain scene, what's that going to amount to, and how can that be then adjusted? So what you mean, a car chase or an explosion will cost a certain amount of money, I don't know how much an explosion costs, 100 grand, let's say, uh, and that takes, that means you can't pay some extras, yeah. or you can't Yeah, yes, yeah. it's, it's constantly shifting around. Are you going to have 20 period vehicles in this scene, which is going to cost X, or are you going to have six period vehicles which you then have to figure out how to shoot around what it what what is going to impose on the director's vision to a degree that is acceptable to everybody what and, and again those are the things again a lot, a lot of producing is psychology as well is figuring out how to work with other people and what they're going to respond to and what's likely to drive them over the edge or what's likely to make them kind of feel so you, your director if you're working with Anthony Minghello, let's say, well, he's probably not his own because he's such a, a lovely person. Yeah, um, cool. But uh, you were making um, Cold Mountain with Anthony Minghello, for example. Yeah, yeah. Big, big production, you know, big stars, big sort of canvas to work on. And Anthony says, I need you know, 400 soldiers charging over the hill. And you say, well, you can't have, you can't have that. And, that, and that's going to upset Anthony. You have to sort of say, well, how, how do we, uh, how do I tell, how do I break the news to him? Yeah, I think more more pertinent than that story was probably working with Scorsese on Gags in New York. Go on then, yeah. So how do you put things to Scorsese? Well, I mean, I think you just have to be very respectful. I mean, fortunately, I mean, I was introduced to him almost immediately. I started working at Miramax and and uh, that we were going up to meetings with him. And then one day I was told I was going to do the meeting on my own, which, and it was kind of difficult because you only ever worked with the head of the studio for years and years and years. But we did have something which was great, which was we were both nerds, that we, we were incredible nerds. He was an asthmatic kid and I was a fat kid. We both hated sports and all we did was watch movies. So we bonded over this kind of incredible, like, you know, I mean, like I would always define the differences as an example, 
I would know that a director called Arthur Crabtree directed a film called Horrors of the Black Museum, and, and so would Marty. But and I would know some of the other titles that Arthur Crabtree had directed, and so would Marty. But only Marty would have seen all of Arthur Crabtree's Earth. <laughs> <laughs> so you couldn't compete at a certain level. You could only go so far. Don't compete, but, just kind of stoke the fires and let. let yeah, and, and, and he kind of he knew I loved. I really loved that material, and it was a very complicated project because it had been in development. You know, he wanted to do it since 1970. He got money from Grimaldi to develop a script in 77, and announced it in the pages of Variety as like you know a Martin Scorsese picture, uh, music by the Clash. That was how it was announced. And then over the years, he had scripts by Jay Cox. He had scripts by Steve Zaley. And I brought Kenny Lonergan in on the, on the process. So it was a kind of a, you know, it was like a relentless, it was a mad process to drop into. But the bottom line was, he knew I really loved the material. So also, I loved him. And I interviewed him years before, obviously, as a journalist. Yes. But he knew that I came with a positive sort of enthusiasm about the thing. So, but it was difficult because he would get, you know, kind of like he had this film in his head for so long that actually achieving it in Rome was challenging. And the, there was this constant thing of where we built, we built this set that was massive. In Chinichita. Like, yeah, it was like a, I don't know, a quarter of a square mile or whatever. We had the docks and things like that. And uh, I remember the, the, that Tom Cruise came to visit one day and he was very, very helpful in it. Marty was sort of saying, you know, he says, what's this hole here? Because we were shooting around, you know, they built this thing. He says, what's this hole here? He says, oh, that's meant to be a cathedral there for a scene. And, and Tom Cruise said to Harvey Weinstein, well, of course he should have the cathedral, shouldn't he? So that was that. And by the way, this is a film, I would point out, where there were only, I think, 12 CG shots in the entire film that, at the t that Marty did not want to fake those things he wanted it to be as far as possible and i think that makes a difference in the movie yeah i think probably it's probably pretty much the last old school hollywood i think it's epic. famous for that isn't it that you, you yeah. didn't cgi in crowd crowds yeah. just got about that stage where you could cgi in a big crowd and people wouldn't notice although i always did yeah. tend to notice like in gladiator that's that guy still wait with sports crowds you always sort of see it, it always thing. looks like that to me we we did some crowd duplication on it and we had to do shots on the river but everything else was basically this incredible set that was built at Chinichita, which weathered because we shot over months and months and months and it started to stink and it did all that because i always remember daniel day lewis striding out for for the uh, at like six in the evening or whatever to start you know filming that that thing and he'd look around at me and go i love the four five points at night <laughs> <laughs> didn't he stink of meat anyway having spent sort of a year in a butcher's in a butcher's yeah, he, wasn't, block. he wasn't too bad <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's amazing because scorsese must have had different actors if he conceived it in 1970 he would have had a whole set of different actors Oh, yeah. um, to, to what ended up with, you know, the hottest actor in the world, DiCaprio and, uh, you know, yeah. Cameron Diaz. Well, it was DiCaprio time. wanting to do it that made it a possibility because he'd been turned down for years. Marty would say that he would be called into a studio uh, on the premise of talking about gangs in New York. And then they'd say, you know, when are you going to make your Sinatra Rat Pack film or whatever? So it was only when DiCaprio kind of took off and said that he wanted to do it, that suddenly it became a practicality to do it. But it was tough to kind of to be the person often that was like, can we actually cut this or can we take this out or can we do something? But again, that's sort of the practical. I mean, he and I would probably, you know, I, I love him. And I think that we, we actually had a pretty fucking fantastic relationship considering how difficult it was 
to get through all of that stuff. I don't, you know, I think now he essentially just does what he wants to do. And those films are made for colossal budgets. And and uh, and I don't think there's anybody that really steps up and <laughs> is mad enough to do what I was doing at the time. The five points, Paradise Square. Streets here are always lively of an evening. Who are the gangs around now? We've got the Daybreak Boys and the Swamp Angels. They work the river looting ships. The frog hollow Shanghai sailors down around the bloody angle. Shirt Tales was rough for a while, but they become a bunch of Jack Roland dandies, lolling around Murderer's Alley looking like Chinamen. Hellcat Maggie, she tried to open her own grog shop, but she drunk up all her own liquor and got thrown out on the street. Beautiful. Now she's on the lay for anything. There's a plug uglies, they're from somewhere deep in the old country. Got their own language, no one understands what they're saying. They love to fight the cops. And the night walkers, the rag pickers were old. Uh, they work on their backs and kill with their hands. They're so scurvy only to plug uglies and talk to them. But who knows what they're saying? The slaughterhousers and the Broadway twisters. They're a fine bunch of bingo boys. And the little 40 thieves. I used to run with them for a while. Until they got took over by Bendrick the cockroach and his red-eyed buggers. Bendrick carries a germ. If you try to leave the gang, they say he hacks up blood on you. I do love the fact it was a very physical production. That very much, it was very much about practical, physical stuff, which was exciting. It also felt like it was thrilling being part of something that felt like an old school kind of epic. Well, you could have been there with, you know, um, uh, John Houston or something. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly, Doing the Bible. Exactly right. So, so there was all of that was kind of amazing. And one was just dealing with story issues the whole time. It was just always about the story and this relationship between these characters, which to me is always, I mean, I, I, I only in years later when I was looking at the film and talking to some like some some film students about it, did I really realize the degree to which we followed you know, classic matrices like like the hero's journey and so on. But we were never thinking about that when we did it. It was always a much more somehow we were just responding to the story and to those those elements. And then when I look at it now, I go, oh my God, this somebody could teach this as textbook, you must do this on this page and that page. But we never thought about that when we were making well, it. Well, you're doing a very good job of it now, Colin, I must say, teaching <laughs> teaching me these things. It, just to finish off, it, 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 that sounds like a hugely a great experience in your career and lots of stories coming from it. Is there a, a, a production moment that particularly sticks with you where you've sort of had a meeting with someone, you've had an argument with someone, or you've stuck your neck out for something, either paying for it or cutting it, and then seeing it and going, oh, I'm so glad I did that. I got that right. What's that? What's your proudest production moment? Gosh, that's a very interesting question. We, I, t I tell you one, one, one moment. I, I fought really hard. I mean, this is like this. It seems so obscure, but I think maybe it sticks with me because I actually, I'm still, I still love it when I see it to this day. But the very first film that I did was a dangerous band, one about Lawrence at the at the. Uh, Paris Peace Conference, which is kind of like, I think it's out there floating out there somewhere on Amazon or something like that, but it's not a film people really oh, know I, or I whatever. Confess I've not seen it. Mm. No, but it, it's like, so, and, it, and so it, it, conceptually it was this thing of keeping it tight and close and whatever, and we did it, well, the whole thing in, in London and we, uh, the, the Lawrence travels from London to Paris for the Peace Conference and he's trying to put fires on the throne of Syria. But there was a, a fantastic scene in this film because again, because it was a microcosm, we were that we were trying to tell everything, about, in essence, about 
T. Lawrence, but in a very condensed manner. And there was a scene um, which happened later in the story, almost towards the end of the film, where he's called back to London and he's because his father's died, so he has to get back. And uh, actually, it wasn't even it wasn't that wasn't the reason for it at the time. That was that was that was how it, that's how we justified it in the film. We that, but it was originally written at the end of the film, and he basically encounters two servicemen who don't know who he is, and he tells them a story about his time in the desert. Uh, I got chills actually talking about it. It's a it's a fantastic scene that Ray Fiennes delivers brilliantly, but it told you everything about where he'd gone, where he'd come from, that he'd had this whole life as Lawrence of Arabia. Here he is now in an army uniform, uh, but he doesn't really want to be, which he didn't. He, did, he actually went into the, the lowest ranks of the Air Force and the Army after this. So he meets these two grunts and he shares a cup of tea or a cup of tea with them and they say, do you want some, you know, some whiskey in it or whatever we've established he doesn't drink and he goes yeah of course and so and you see him desperately wanting to be part of what these boy what these guys are in the future but he's haunted by the desert and the past uh, and he references a boy that we never talk about in the show at all that was 14 year old boy called Dahoom who if you research and you find out about Lawrence is possibly the the only person he really ever loved in his life who was this young Arab boy who he brought back to Oxford and he died of pneumonia or whatever and he projected Lawrence himself wrote about how his love for one specific person was projected onto Faisal and then onto the Arab people generally anyway this scene is a perfect miniature within a miniature and it got cut from the film quite at a certain point the film was running too long couldn't make it work and it felt wrong at the end of the story it somehow didn't fit and I really, really fought like crazy for it. And I just kept saying, this scene is like, the whole film is in this scene. And then Chris one day said, we got really tired of listening to this, come and have a look at this cut of the film. And they found a way to put it in the middle of the film, or like, it's actually, it's exactly the right place. It, it propels you into the final act. So it's two thirds of the way through and it's there intact. And it, it's like, I think, just the way we shot it, it's beautifully photographed by Vitold Stock, looks fantastic. The acting's fantastic. Rafe is magnificent in it. It's like another, it's like another thing. It's like like something so special. So that I feel really proud that you sometimes you have to fight and fight and fight and fight and fight. And I would have been really sad if that scene had been because it would have been lost. You'd have been sulking for thirty years. <laughs> something like that anyway, <laughs> but then you found it and you fought for it and there was a way to get it in and there it obviously sticks with in. you and yeah, that's and a brilliant it, story and it's one of your and it's your first film as a producer and you had that experience so you know it can be done so it, yeah, it, it, it gives was, you a lot of confidence in your own now and your own instinct i was lucky that i was also you know left to my own devices to some degree but i always had like david putnam and a wonderful woman brenda reed who was at anglia as as two people who really believed in me and what i could do and supported those things so so at the end of the day they knew but i mean i look at the film now and i just think oh my god you know this is wrong and that's wrong and this is a disaster and i would completely recut things and do all that stuff but there's still in essence something there that's very powerful and it has an effect on people when they see it it's funny it's still a film that when people do discover it because it's also about the state of the middle east today which funny enough the british critics couldn't see it got terrible reviews in britain 
uh, they all they saw was David Putnam's name and people in period gear, and it, they immediately they went into their oh you know wonder why they aren't running in baggy shorts ha ha all yeah. that. <laughs> Whereas the Americans got it in one. The Americans got it immediately and said this is about the state of the Middle East and it's not about 1919. It's about now, mm. and it got fantastic reviews in America and then we won the Emmy for it as best international film. So. Well. That, that, and that, that scene in the middle that uh, the producer fought for. That's <laughs> without, that, without that, it wouldn't have worked. <laughs> Colin, that's a brilliant story. What's that film? A Dangerous Man? It's called A Dangerous Man, Lawrence After Arabia. And I believe somebody, unfortunately, because it's like it got caught. It's, it's actually owned, I think, now by ITV Studios. They must have, ITV must have control over it. Part Anglia went out of business, yeah. passed through various things. But I think it's out there somewhere. It's Rafe's first screen debut. It was his screen debut. He went. He finished our film, and he went off to do uh, Wuthering Heights with Juliette Binoche. And then we needed because we're, again, one of the this is a much bigger conversation. But one of the things that's lovely is to be able to have the time and the space to preview something or to show it to people and figure out what needs to be done additionally. Mm -hmm. And even though we had no money really for that what became clear is that people didn't quite understand what the Paris Peace Conference was. So we took some footage that we'd shot, turned it into black and white and mixed it in, in with some Pathé showreel footage. And we had, we came up with this idea, which again, these are things as a producer you've got to come up with quickly. We came up with an idea of Lawrence sneaking into a newsreel theater before he gets on the train to go to France. And he watches this footage. The problem is that he'd now grown his hair and he'd got a swarthy Heathcliff. <laughs> so he sits so he's sitting in a cinema with a raincoat with the up like this and his hand over his face. <laughs> So well, you got Rafe back for a day from the Wuthering yeah, Heights set to yeah, do this pick-up. We needed this thing, and it's the director and me sitting behind him smoking cigarettes, <laughs> pretending that we're all in this little newsreel theatre. Listen, <laughs> it's been a fantastic peek at the magic of the movies through your career, uh, Colin Vades, and if nothing else comes from it, we can sell a few copies of uh, uh, A Dangerous Man on, on DVD from Amazon, uh -huh. if nothing else. But listen, there's so many stories there. Uh, completely inspirational to me uh, to hear you sticking your neck out for these things and, and how it all goes. Um, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it now. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on Meet the Producer, Colin. Thank you so much, Jason. I'm looking forward to sharing some of these th things that are coming up. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot. Take care. Colin Vane's there. What a wonderful career and what experiences he delves into. From journalism to diplomacy and a deep book of contacts and knowing how to put them all together. What did I learn from meeting Colin Vane's? Well, zest and enthusiasm can go pretty far, right? His appetite for making films and for loving them clearly feeds his taste and commitment, and I think I'll take a lot of inspiration from that. It's a huge boost to know that that side of things counts for so much, as much as building the financial package and intuiting the right people to work with and partner up with for which projects and where to insist on certain things and where to be flexible. It's great hearing how those decisions have impacted those films that we've come to know and love that Colin Vaines has worked on and produced. I'm still not convinced about the cigars though. Thanks to Colin Vaines for his wealth of advice and his stories and for his time. Do join me for the next episode of Meet the Producer when I'll be talking to BAFTA winner for her outstanding contribution to British cinema, Elizabeth Carlson. Liz, with her partner Stephen Woolley, has produced hits such as Made in Dagenham, Carol and Mothering Sunday. So join me and Liz 
on the next episode. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss it. And never forget, the Production Guild of Great Britain is the UK's leading membership organisation for those working in film and TV drama production. It represents professionals working in a range of fields, including production, assistant directing, accounts, location management, VFX and post-production. It provides members with industry advice, training, networking, seminars and now a podcast. And its availability service provides information on members' availability for work to heads of departments seeking crew for UK and international film and TV productions. You can find out more at www.productionguild.com. It's where you can also find this podcast, as well as on many other platforms. So there's no excuse to not join us for the next Meet the Producer. And I'll see you soon.